The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. God's Word comes to us this morning as he gave it to us through the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of the Epistle to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus far God's word, let's ask him to write it into our hearts. Father, we resonate in a deep sense with the Apostle Paul's joyful words to me to live as Christ, to die as gain, and yet we also confess that that is not the theme that we constantly play uh, inside ourselves at every moment of every day. And so we ask you to take these words of testimony from a man whom you captured and subdued by grace and make them our words in a deeper, fuller sense as we glance at Paul, but really, with Paul, look away to another. Look to the Lord Jesus, the great treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us arrive at Westminster having been burned and sometimes bruised 
by churches that have reduced Christianity to duty and discipline or having been disillusioned by churches that present Christianity as life coaching for coping with problems and we found that doesn't really cut it. We've been stung by what Dr. Brian Chappell of Covenant Seminary calls the deadly bees. Some of you will be reading his text on Christ-centered preaching this semester. He talks about those commands to be like and be good and be disciplined as, as deadly. Not in themselves, but by themselves. Turning all of the Christian life into a matter of what we do. But now we come to Westminster and we come refreshed, comforted by the real good news of what Jesus has done for us, outside us. His flawless obedience in our place, his sacrificial death for our sins, his resurrection for our justification. Our joy has been kindled as we sang in this hymn, our grateful love fanned to flame by focusing not on what we must do for Christ, but on what he has done for us. So it's understandable if our defenses go up when somebody starts talking about following the example of the saints or maybe even more so following the example of Jesus himself. And yet, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does over and over again in this brief, affectionate letter to his dear Christian friends at Philippi. Follow my example. And in the second chapter, as we'll see in one of the other messages this semester, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Wow, that's tough. I mean, Paul's most overt in 3.17 when he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. But he's only a little more subtle in the verses just before that when he talks about the fact that he realizes he's not arrived, he has far to go, and he is striving for the prize and the goal to which God has called him and for which Christ has seized him. And then Paul says, now if you're really mature, you're going to think this way. We all think this way. Be like Paul. In fact, throughout this letter, Paul's strategy for helping his dear Philippian friends to deal with the challenges to their faith is to say to them in a really pastoral and fatherly way, now here's how I'm confronting the threats that you're facing and I'm facing together. Here's how it's done. Watch me and then follow my example. They were facing three main threats, as we'll see. Suffering, self-centeredness, and salvation by works. And for each of those, Paul has a rich, theological, Christ-centered, gospel-grounded, grace-saturated remedy. But he doesn't present it in the abstract. He presents it as it's embodied in flesh in his own experience and the experience of his colleague Timothy and the Philippians' own leader, Epaphroditus, who has come from them to him to minister to him. He knows we're wired to learn by watching and by imitating. Like a son standing at his dad's elbow, at the workbench, or a daughter for that matter, why not? To do woodworking, watching dad turn a, a block of wood into something beautiful, or uh, work on cars, watching how it's done. We're wired to learn that way. 
And so Paul is not embarrassed about showing us what it's like to look away from ourselves to Christ and saying, here's how I'm doing it. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the six opportunities that I have to bring portions of your word now. Uh, Be like Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, be like Jesus. Uh, Not through teeth-gritted effort on your own, but as a response to grace. So the meditations I have in mind, calling them, see Paul suffer, see Jesus serve, see Timothy worry and Epaphroditus risk his life. That has to go together in one. See Paul rest, see Paul run, and see Paul rejoice. Works, doesn't it? See Paul suffer. The text that I read for you is about suffering. It's part of what is customary in a Hellenistic friendship letter to exchange news between the author and the recipients. And so Paul updates them on his situation and he'll comment on their situation. And why does he tell them about how well his imprisonment is going? Well, no doubt, at least in part, to reassure them because they're deeply concerned for him. You see that bond of affection all the way through this letter. He says about his feeling for them, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I know that through your prayers, I will experience salvation. My brothers whom I love and long for. Even at the very end, he says, I know you've always been concerned about me, although you haven't been able to show it through the contribution that you've now been able to send. You couldn't do that earlier. So they deeply loved him. Paul says, I want you to real, just don't worry. Yes, I'm in chains. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Yes, we're waiting for the decision from Caesar on my appeal. But don't worry. Things are going great. Wish you were here. Well, maybe not that, but you know. Things are going great in prison. So he's reassuring them, but he's doing more than that. Because as he goes on in the text, just beyond where I stopped reading, he gives us the clue that the Philippians are facing suffering too. They have opponents, he says in verse 28, verses 29 and 30. They have been given the privilege not only of believing in Jesus, but also suffering for his sake. Going through the same kind of suffering they saw him and Silas experience when they first planted the gospel there. And now Paul says, you still hear I'm going through that experience. So see me suffer and hear how I process the situation. And he points out three things in particular about how he's processing this situation of suffering that shows them how our ability to say with Paul, to me to live as Christ, to die as gain, changes the way we view difficult, hardship circumstances. First of all, you see in 12 and 13, Paul says, my chains, which is really literally the word that the ESV renders imprisonment all the way through, but remember he's not locked away in a little cell, he's under house arrest, chained 24-7, to one of Caesar's elite troops, the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, sort of Caesar's not-so-secret service, uh, who reported directly to the emperor, chained 24-7, Paul says, my chains have given me access to an unreached people group, to a hidden people. How else could I have reached the higher echelons of the military other than to come here in custody 
of Roman authority. So it's been known through the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ, that I'm here because of Jesus. Last chapter, he will extend greetings to the Philippian Christians from those of Caesar's household. What an intriguing statement. Right under the nose of the emperor, there are people who belong to the true king, the the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who send greetings. Paul says, I've got, you may think that chains have hindered me, but you know, this is not about my freedom of physical movement. It's about the gospel reaching people. And I've been able to talk to people who I never would have reached if I hadn't come to Rome in chains. It's not about my freedom of movement. It's about the advance of the message of Christ. And then in verses 14 through 18, as you heard, Paul says, actually my chains have made other people bolder. They've seen me locked up and they thought, boy, I want to be like Paul. I want to get locked up too. Well, they may not have thought that, but it has emboldened them to preach. Some out of affection for Paul, knowing his heart to see the gospel reach every corner of the capital city now in which he lives, but does not have the freedom to move. He can't go to the marketplace. He can't go across the Tiber River to the synagogues in the Jewish quarter as he typically would do. He's kind of locked in. But others, seeing Paul hemmed in, have said, we want to advance that message of the gospel because we love him so. Then again, there are some others who think, ah, Paul's all chained up. We're going to take this opportunity to make more disciples for Jesus than Paul can make in Rome. They do it out of rivalry. They do it out of competition. Their motives are terrible. But apparently their message is true. If their message weren't true, Paul would say some things about them that he would have said, say about the Judaizers in the first chapter of Galatians. Apparently they're speaking the true gospel, but from terrible motives. Paul says, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. As long as Christ is preached, I am rejoicing. It's not about my reputation. It's about Jesus' glory and people being touched by the power of the gospel. And then the longest section of this little piece where Paul's reporting on how things are going is verses 19 through 26. And Paul looks forward, actually, at the very last phrase of what has now been divided for us as verse 18. It really belongs with verse 19. I will rejoice. Now he's looking forward into the future. And he says, there are two outcomes to my legal situation. Caesar might decide to execute me as a dangerous uh, threat to the Roman Empire. Or Caesar might decide, as we know from Acts, lesser officials in the Roman Empire decided, there's no big deal about this message. It's not a threat to the stability of the empire, and he may release me. And Paul says, I'm not sure which it's going to be. By the end of that little text, he comes to a kind of a conclusion on the basis of his perception of where the need is greatest. But he's contemplating those two options. Notice it's not a choice between the lesser of two evils, but between the greater of two goods. In Shakespeare's famous play, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, Hamlet viewed life and death as the lesser of two evils. You remember to be or not to be? Go ahead, pretend that you do. 
It's a soliloquy about suicide. He doesn't know how to avenge his father's death at the hands of his uncle. And he's thinking about the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You've heard that. That's where it came from. Okay. And he says, life is miserable. I think I want to go to sleep. Oh, but if I sleep, I dream. And who knows what those dreams would be. So he says, death makes cowards of us all. I'm afraid to commit suicide. What will it be, life or death, the lesser of two evils? Paul says, no, that's not my problem. My problem is the greater of two goods. Immediate execution means that I get to depart and be with Christ. For me personally, better. Better by far. The Greek actually says much more better, which is not too grammatical in English or even in Greek, but Paul just goes overboard. Way better. Then again, if I keep on living, I can have fruitful ministry, including in your lives, because I expect I'll be released and I get to come back to you, and I think you still need me. I think Jesus still has work for me to do. So I'm going to stay, I think. I'm going to stay. The one thing, Whatever happens, the one thing I want above everything else, my eager expectation and hope is this one thing, that Christ would be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I know that's the deliverance, that the spirit of Jesus Christ will give me in response to your prayers. Now, the commentators debate about whether Paul is saying, at that point, that early on in this paragraph, I know I'm going to be released. That's an unusual way for Paul to use that theologically loaded term, soteria, salvation, which typically he refers to in that comprehensive, eschatological sense of deliverance from the wrath of God and the curse of sin. I would suggest, rather than Paul saying, at this point, I know I'm going to be released, and therefore sort of making his weighing back and forth of options later in the paragraph kind of irrelevant. Paul is saying, there is one deliverance that I want among all above everything else, and I know whatever the outcome of my trial, God will give this to me as you pray. I want to be delivered, well you see it in verse 20, I want to be delivered from being ashamed of the gospel. I want to be delivered from fear, but rather have full courage so that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to be delivered from ever bringing any dishonor or contempt on the name of my Lord. That's what I want to be rescued from above all else. And why? Well, Paul's going to tell us in these next chapters, because this one whose honor is above all else, is the one who humbled himself even to the obedience of the death of the cross and is now exalted to the highest heaven by God the Father. This is the one in whom I have received a righteousness not my own, not of my accomplishment, not inherited from my parents and my family and my kinfolk, but granted by grace through faith alone. He's the one I want to glorify above all else. See Paul suffer for Jesus. But you know, as you see Paul suffer for Jesus, it's like like looking at somebody who is looking over your shoulder at the Matterhorn or at Mount Everest 
And you notice they're looking at something else. And seeing them do that, what does that make you want to do? You want to look at the mountain. That's what Paul's saying. I'm looking at Jesus. Look with me at Jesus. And make that your supreme desire. That Christ would be honored in your body, whether by life or by death. Good grades or not so good grades. Okay? Ministry that is well received. Ministry that is sometimes rejected. Whatever the outcome, that Christ would be honored in you, whether by life or by death, for he is worthy of all honor. Please pray with me. Our God and our Father, thank you for using your servant Paul to turn our eyes toward him, but then really toward Jesus, on whom the eyes of his heart were fixed. And we pray, Father, that as we face adversity, very likely for most of us, not nearly as severe as what Paul and the Philippians were facing, but as we face difficulty, that our aim as Paul's would be that Christ would be honored in our bodies, whether by life or by death, whether by joyful, fruitful ministry or by difficult ministry, that Jesus would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.